So what I'd like to speak about as we begin to explore is the area of personal mythology and awakening. Now many of our fairy tales and much of our mythology, many of the stories that we listen to throughout our lives, revolve around a central theme and in different forms the stories and the myths that we listen to revolve around the theme of awakening. Awakening from the false through discovering that which is true. Now the heroes and the heroines in our stories and in our myths cast aside their disguises and the identities that have confined them as the truth of who they are emerges and is revealed to them. We hear the story of the scholarly maid who, as it turns out, was actually a princess. And when she realizes she is actually a princess, she leaves behind her the world of drudgery and struggle and sorrow. The poor, ugly frog, as it turns out, was actually a prince who was falsely imprisoned in a form that was not his own. The ugly duckling in our story turns out, in truth, to be a swan, imprisoned by the delusions of others and the delusions of herself. All of these stories or the themes of these stories are essentially about unmasking or awakening. They are stories about revelation or understanding. They are stories about being liberated from disguises and identities which have been prisons. Prisons that have served to suffocate and to silence everything that was genuine and authentic and free within their being. These stories of awakening really describe coming home to that which is true. The themes of our fairy tales, the themes of our mythology, describe awakening from delusion and ignorance. The delusions that led our heroes and our heroines to accept the false of being true. Awakening from the power of those delusions, which essentially sentenced our heroes and heroines to embody and to lead a counterfeit life, a life that was not actually authentic, but to live in a way through their delusion in which they were exiled from the essential nature of their being. The themes are again and again themes of awakening, themes of understanding. Now these themes that are so strongly featured in much of our kind of cultural fairy tales and mythology are also very much at the core of most spiritual stories and most spiritual teachings. And perhaps the most, the most well-known of these stories is actually told in the story of the salt bell. 
There was a child made all of salt who very much wanted to know where he had come from. So he set out on a long journey and traveled to many lands in pursuit of this understanding. Finally, he came to the shore of the great ocean. How marvelous, he cried, and stuck one foot in the water. The ocean beckoned him in further, saying, If you wish to know who you are, do not be afraid. The salt child walked further and further into the water, dissolving with each step, and at the end exclaimed, Ah, now I know who I am. Siddhartha sat beneath the Bodhi tree, and when he got up, he got up the Buddha. In Zen stories and in so many spiritual stories, again and again we encounter this theme of the immediacy and depth of revelation, of understanding. That through revelation or through insight, there takes place a fundamental transformation in consciousness. Part of this theme and part of this teaching really says that actually the liberating insight, revelation, doesn't necessarily have a great deal to do with time. That insight doesn't necessarily have much to do with a kind of gradual improvement or progress. Rather, the theme of immediacy is stressed. That through the power of insight, the veils and shadows of delusion, of misunderstanding, are essentially dissolved. There's a wonderful Zen saying, it says, when my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. <laughs> it is not saying that the power of delusion, you know, is gradually picked away at and gradually dispersed, but rather that the very power of insight, the very power of understanding that which is true, is sufficiently power enough powerful enough to dispel the chains of delusion and in doing so, in dispelling the chains of illusion, there is also the dissolving of the conflict and the struggle and the sorrow that is so intrinsic to delusion, the sorrow that belongs in believing the false to be true. Another theme or another aspect of understanding a revelation that is endlessly stressed is that insight is so profound, liberation insight is so profound, that is, it is something much more than just a temporary or a fleeting glimpse of something that is true and then is seen for a moment and then disappears once more. Much more it is stressed that through insight and through understanding, there is the abandonment on a cellular level of the belief in that which is false. The Buddha once said that wood can turn to ashes, but ashes cannot return to wood. According to our stories and mythology, 
according to the teaching of understanding and insight, awakening to that which is true, understanding that which is true, is an understanding that is actually saturated with joy, with happiness, with peace. Understanding what is true is actually what allows us and enables us to lay down the burden of grasping, of division, of the pain of separation. And in understanding that which is true, we also lay down the suffering of homelessness, the suffering of being exiled from that which is most true in ourselves, most true in our life. But through understanding what is most essential to our being, we actually awaken to that which is most genuine and most authentic in all of life. And we see it reflected in all things that are seen and heard and touched. The bottom line, basically, is that no one actually complains about enlightenment. No one complains about waking up. No one complains about insight. In reading the story about the toad who turns out to be a prince, we don't hear a kind of postscript to that story where the prince suddenly finds himself cherishing fond memories of hopping about in the slime and wishes he could be there a little bit longer. In hearing the story of the the skull they made, it turns out to be a princess. We don't hear the princess wishing for a few more moments of drudgery and scrubbing. The swan doesn't long for a little bit longer time as a duckling so that she can further explore what it feels like to be homeless and exiled. You can read the endless sutras of the Buddha the endless things he had to say about awakening, about enlightenment, and the one thing he never did is say it was boring and wished that he could have, you know, a few more nights of carousing and feasting as a prince. Instead, what it seems, what is best, is that the truth of awakening, the peace and the happiness that is found in understanding is powerful enough to shatter the chains of the past. There is no sense of there being anything missing or absent and no sense of there being anything to gain. It is not an extinction of being, but a fullness of being. Now many of the themes of awakening that we find in our fairy tales, find in our, in our mythology, and that are so central to spiritual teaching. These are themes that resonate within us. Very deeply they can touch within us a chord of response. After all, we don't come here on this path in order to suffer more, in order to be more stressed out, in order to find more conflict or struggle or sorrow. We come here, I think, intuitively to wake up. Somewhere within us, many of these themes inspire a spark of seeking, a spark of inspiration. 
And I think it is important to see how, how significant it is that this sense of longing, this sense of looking and seeking, is such an essential part of every spiritual journey. Within the stories that we have listened to of others, we actually also see and hear our own story reflected and repeated in different forms. In our lives and in this path, we search for peace, we look for happiness, we look for intimacy. In our lives, we search for oneness, for communion, for freedom. We are endlessly looking for ways to dissolve the barriers of separation and division. And no matter how many times we we falter or seem to fail or seem to be disappointed, no matter how many hardships we meet or challenges we meet, it is almost as if we have within ourselves a kind of homing instinct. We come back once more to look and to seek for that which seems to promise us the greatest happiness, the greatest understanding, the greatest peace. You know, if you look what happens on a retreat, I know that, that many of you sit at times where there's much difficulty, where there's a great deal of challenge. It's not that everybody hangs out here in, in endless bliss and peace and joy. This is probably useful information for you in case you thought you were the only one who didn't hang out in endless peace and happiness and joy. I know that many of you sit often with with mind states, with feelings, with thoughts, with times that are deeply challenging. And have you ever wondered what brings you back to sit again? You know, you probably notice we don't go drag you out of bed, you know, we don't go sort of hound you out of the garden. And yet here you are again, you know, sitting and walking. There's something quite mysterious about it. It is almost as if we carry within ourselves some instinct, some sense of intuition that knows the significance, deep significance of waking up no matter what, of being awake. Now, it seems to me that this path, that this journey that we might call a spiritual path or a spiritual journey, is actually only another extension, another dimension of the pathways that we have followed in our lives. In our lives, too, we, search, we, we follow a search for what we intuitively sense is possible. Intuitively, we understand that to live with greed, or to live with hatred, or to live with struggle, or to live in a, a way of believing in division, is somehow a false way to live, an untrue way to live. That somehow to live in a way in which we are dominated by that which separates and divides us, is a way of living which is actually perhaps even an abandonment of that which is most true and most possible within ourselves. There's a North, North American Indian shaman once who said, we walk on this earth and we can live in a way which is most alien to 
to that which is true within ourselves. And that which is true within ourselves knows this. When we listen to the messages of our world and to the stories of our world, sometimes it is almost as if we are listening to a story of collective delusion. When we look around us at the world and we see the the way in which appearance and performance is sanctified, the, the blessings that are given to possession and attainment, the ways in which success and prestige and pleasure are worshipped. When we listen to the stories of our world about the fears of change, the fears of aging, the fears of death, on some level we know we are listening to a story of collective delusion. And at times we have shared in this story. I'm sure at times all of us have shared in this story where we have felt it was perhaps the most important things in our lives to to be special, to make our mark upon the world, to gain what we could, to achieve, and and to think of the, the perfection of a human being in being able to clothe ourselves in the in the clothes of success and invincibility, or denial and avoidance. Sometimes when we listen to our own inner stories, we are also aware of the power of delusion. You notice as you listen inwardly in this environment, at times how endlessly fascinated we are with the world of appearances, with the world of judgments and images and descriptions that we extend towards others and that we hold about ourselves. Sometimes we're aware of the delusions that are embodied in those moments when we feel to be so imprisoned by our own hungers and needs and fears. All of us at different times have traveled these paths and shared in these stories. And I think we all understand that there is something within these stories and within these pathways that does not actually ring true. We are also all aware of the consequences of these stories and these delusions on a personal and a collective level. How much prejudice and how much division and exploitation How much pain and sorrow and suffering follows in the footsteps of endlessly believing in the delusion of separation? This is an interview I I read with a a Serbian man who said that, you know, three years ago he lived on a street and raised his children with his neighbors and they helped each other in times of trouble. And then one day there came a point when he realized or came to understand that that man who was his neighbor was a Muslim and he shot him. This is a story of separation. They cannot, whenever there is separation, there is the potential for so much anger and violence. That story is not any different from the story of an anorexic young girl who stands and looks in the mirror and believes herself to be too fat. It is believing in the world of appearance to be true. Intuitively, there is part of us that refuses to bless these delusions. 
Somewhere within our hearts and within our consciousness, there is the vision that lets us know, that tells us that there is another pathway that we can follow in our life. In our hearts we know that the compassion that heals our world and that the peace that banishes war and division and the understanding that will free us, that none of this is born of formulas or of strategies, that none of this is born of, of resolution or of willpower, but that compassion and peace and healing and happiness in a very deep way, all of these are the most natural embodiment of understanding that which is true and authentic within ourselves and within all things. Wisdom and understanding frees us to live a life of truth rather than a life that is governed by division and delusion. Now, intuition brings us to this path, despite the fact that our minds tell us that it is not logical. Of course, this path is not logical. There is nothing logical at all about this journey. Clearly, there's no logic in saying, you know, well, if, if you sit down, you're, you're still, you know, you're going to somehow come to insight. There's no logic. You know, lots of things sit down still in the world and don't necessarily come to insight. And yet somehow within us there is this intuition that guides us to this life. A life of letting go, a life of simplicity, a life of acceptance, and a life of inquiry. And in living this life, no matter how short a period of time we live it, we actually see and encounter some of the apprehensions and the fears that we have about awakening. Sometimes we do encounter the, how incredibly powerful our desires are to stay within the boundaries of what we know, to stay within the boundaries of what is familiar to us. We encounter how incredibly powerful our desires are to stay with that which is safe, that which offers us identity and pleasure and certainty. And no matter how many stories we hear about transformed ducklings and toads and scullery maids, there is still a part of us that would like to distance ourselves from these stories and somehow say that, you know, liberation or deep awakening, you know, probably only happens to special people. People with special karma, you know. You know, maybe special backgrounds or special parents. And we also find ourselves uncertain at times about everything this path speaks about. In many ways, we... we we like, perhaps like, a lot about our lives and we like a lot about who we are, which is fine, but we're not sure whether it's fine to like it. And sometimes, despite the hardships and the conflicts and the disillusionment and the struggles that we may find in our lives, we're not totally sure about whether we're actually willing to let go of our stories, 
let go of our lives and let go of our identities. Because there are no guarantees. You know, we make no promises here. We offer no guarantees and we offer no certainties. In an ideal spiritual path, I'll paint you a picture of an ideal spiritual path that most people imagine. In an ideal spiritual path, we would all come together here and we would discover so much peace and happiness and wisdom and calmness and understanding and then we would let go after we've discovered this. Instead, in this path, we are asked first to let go. We're asked simply to let go and to see what unfolds. To see what unfolds when we don't stay within the boundaries of what we know and what is safe and what is familiar and certain, just to see what unfolds out of that. This is not necessarily a deal we are particularly comfortable with. It doesn't seem to be an offer that carries with it very much proof or any guarantees or any certainties. And I think sometimes when we are faced with the possibility of awakening, we face one of the very deepest dilemmas of this path and one of the deepest dilemmas of our own heart. When we are greeted with the possibility of awakening and freedom, we meet a mixture of both fear and longing. We meet a mixture of an incredible attractive attraction and allure, and we also meet a sense of terror. Now sometimes we hear awakening described in words that we don't always feel comfortable with. Sometimes we hear words like emptiness or being no one um, or transparency. And somewhere in our minds, we often translate these words to mean destruction or annihilation or self-negation. We are aware that awakening means seeing the end of separation, which also means to see the end of a separate self. Now, I think part of us can sense the wondrous possibilities of no longer having to inhabit the identity of a separate self, and part of us also fears this kind of understanding. Part of us might wonder, well, you know, what or who will guide us in our lives if we were understood ourselves to be no one, if we understood emptiness, if we, if we had no separate self? Part of us might wonder, does, does this mean that we kind of cease to have any uniqueness or creativity? We might wonder, well, what would inspire us to, to begin things, to create, to initiate? 
And on one level, you know, part of us might think, well, you know, enlightenment's a great idea if we were, you know, going to retire to a convent or, or live on a cave or, you know, spend the rest of our lives here at Gaia House. But part of us might also feel, well, you know, this doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Like maybe enlightenment is some really kind of dry and barren place where there's an absence of passion, of love, of creativity, of direction. We meet these doubts and we meet these fears, and yet at the same part of us, at the same time part of us absolutely longs to be free. Absolutely longs to end a world of struggle, to see the end of limitation, the end of sorrow and the end of separation. We have a lot of doubts about letting go of the notion of self, as if there is something really solid there that we're being asked to let go of. We have a lot of doubts about letting go of the notion of I, as if there's some real substantial I that we're somehow going to let go of. What happens to those eyes that are let go of? You know, do you, have you ever encountered sort of like a, a pile of let go eyes somewhere? No. You know, what, what, you know, have you found yet the eye that is going to be let go of? We have so many doubts about letting go of this sense of self because it seems to offer us in many ways so much. And then because of what this sense of self offers us, despite the pain that is involved in separation, this is why we encounter this ambivalence. Because it is within this sense of self that we find our identities, our, our sense of being someone. For many people, what they would really like to happen in this path is that they would really like to be enlightened, but they would really like to be there to enjoy it. They would really like to be awake, and yet would really like to be there to appreciate it and to celebrate it. And it's hard to digest the possibility of enlightenment, hard to digest the possibility of a way of being in which we might actually be absent. I mean, in a sense, because we live in the world of experience, we can't actually even see any point in being enlightened if we weren't there. You know, it doesn't really seem to be any point because so much of our sense of self is actually based upon the world of experience. On another level, we may find ourselves also at times wanting to make deals with awakening. We want to make deals with insight. Like... Many people feel that they're really happy and really eager and really ready to shed the more difficult attributes of a separate self. And many people would really be happy and eager and, and really excited about saying farewell to defensiveness and anger and obsessions and judgment, but at the same time would like also the best of all worlds would really like to be able to hold on to this improved and perfected self because it seems like it would be a much more enjoyable self to have, a, a more admirable self. 
there are no models and no stories that actually speak about such a possibility. There is nothing that speaks about such a possibility. Again, nowhere in the sutras you see, you know, the Buddha getting up after the Bodhi tree and saying, no, well, good, I'm glad I got rid of those bits and I'm so happy I'm enlightened now, you know, and I'm the most enlightened. Awakening to what is true, dissolving that which is false, is the whole purpose of the spiritual life. It is the whole, the whole path of inquiry, the whole path of compassion, of understanding, is in the service of awakening to what is true, in the service of seeing through the world of appearances, and of shedding the prison of a separate self, of a belief in separation. Reality is simply the loss of the notion of I. Lose the notion of I by seeking its identity. It will automatically vanish, and reality will shine forth by itself. This is the direct method. There is no greater mystery than this, that we keep seeking reality, though in fact we are reality. We think that there is something hiding reality and that this must be destroyed before reality is gained. How ridiculous. A day will dawn when you will laugh at all your past efforts. That which will be on the day you laugh is also here and now. When we enter into a retreat, into a time of aloneness and a time of calmness, we often see the clash that there is between our fascination and longing for freedom, for truth, for understanding, and our equal fascination with separate, the separate self and the world of appearance. We see the ways in meditation, how fascinated we become with our own story. There is a curious paradox that is revealed in meditation. Now, in this practice, we emphasize such great simplicity and mindfulness. We encourage you to cling nowhere, to dwell upon nothing, to see the wisdom of impermanence, to see the wisdom of transparency. Yet, as we practice, and let go of so much of the distractedness and so much of the busyness of the mind. Who we are, or our sense of who we are, with our thoughts, our memories, our feelings, and our issues and our problems, our sense of all of this is actually revealed more clearly to us. Have you noticed? You know that when the mind is actually beginning to let go of its distractedness, let go of its busyness, let go of its doing, how much we actually become more informed about our sense of who we are. We say, I have this anger, I have this fear, I have this anxiety, I'm like this. In many ways, we see the way our 
we carry the burdens of the past, we, we see the patterns of the past that move us on a moment-to-moment level. We see our patterns of judgment, our patterns of anger, our patterns of fear. And in many ways, this seeing of ourselves, of things that were perhaps previously clouded or vague, this is a kind of revelation. It's a kind of awakening. We are more awake to ourselves. We are more awake to our own story. Now, this awakening to our story, we greet it with many different responses. Now, one of the responses that we greet our story with, of course, one of them is aversion. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I didn't know I was like this. I would rather not be like this. You know. But another response is the response of fascination. Fascination with our own story, which often creates its own longing, its own wishing. We long to understand our stories sometimes. We want to trace back to the beginning, where our fears came from, where our anger started, where the patterns of judgment started, how we ended up like this. You know, how did it all begin? In many ways, we become so interested in our story. Another response to our story, or being more awake to our story, is we want to get rid of parts of it. We want to get rid of parts of ourselves that we really feel threatened by. We want to get rid of our aversions, we want to get rid of our fears. In many ways, the longing is to fix ourselves. The longing that is created is actually to fix ourselves. Now, becoming fascinated with our story is a part of waking up, and yet, I think it is really important to see that it can create its own addiction and actually can reinforce separation. Because we can become so fascinated with fixing ourselves, with exploring our story, that understanding emptiness or understanding transparency or understanding the nature, nature of freedom is sometimes an understanding then that we think we should postpone or demote. It's not so important, it feels to us. Sometimes it feels far more important to us to have this real clear understanding of our story. Or sometimes we think that we will gain freedom or gain happiness by getting rid of that which is imperfect in ourselves by resolving our issues or by improving ourselves. In doing this, what we are often attempting to do is to rewrite our story. We want to rewrite our story in a better form. To satisfy who? To satisfy who? In many ways, this attempt to fix to be perfect, to improve, can be a very subtle, sometimes not so subtle, grasping hold of the notion of self. Sometimes it's motivated by the greatest of intentions. We want to free ourselves of pain. We want to free ourselves of the unwholesome. We're seeking for happiness. We're seeking for peace. 
but sometimes we believe that the way to find all of this is through finding the perfect self. And sometimes we come to believe that the primary obstacle to understand all that we seek for, that the primary obstacle, that all that is worthy and valuable is actually the imperfection within ourselves. In this belief, we believe that by improving and fixing or modifying the imperfect self, we're going to enter the path of enlightenment. But actually, this is a very familiar path. We have followed this pathway many times in our lives. Perhaps for the whole of our lives, we have followed this pathway of getting, trying to get rid of everything we think is imperfect, of striving to achieve and gain all that we think is perfect. Is there any, anything new in this? There's nothing new in this. And has it in your life actually led to any more freedom? It doesn't lead to more freedom. Our sense of self is, of course, something which is of enduring interest to in our lives. Out of our belief in our sense of self, our belief in who we are, is born our fears and our needs, born many of our choices and ambitions, our aversions and our opponents. From our judgments about ourselves are born our strategies, our avoidances, the things that we grasp hold of. Our sense of who we are is carried in our stories, carried in our dramas, in our histories, and in our searches. Our sense of self is a very central figure, of course, in our moments of success and excitement, and in our moments of failure and disappointment. It seems that there is no experience that is complete without the self, either to make it happen or to have it happen to. Our sense of self is the bearer or the carrier of our personal mythology. It is hard for us to conceive of a way of being or a way of seeing which is not governed by this notion of self. And sometimes we even believe, well, our sense of self has got us this far in our lives and it is going to take us all the way to enlightenment. There is, of course, a great fine balance discovering meditation. We're not interested in the extreme of self-negation or self-annihilation. We are not here to attempt to destroy the self. Nor are we here to attempt to improve and fix and modify the self. I think it is far more interesting for us to consider the possibility that any notion of I am that is conditioned by grasping Conditioned by taking hold of anything can never be the truth of who we are. That any notion of I am conditioned by taking hold of any concept, image, judgment, or conclusion can never be the truth of who we are. That the world of appearances that is conditioned by taking hold of images and judgments and conclusions can never be the truth of that world. Learning to listen well, learning not to draw this conclusion. There's a story of a monk who went to live in a monastery in Thailand. And at first, when he was in the monastery, 
she kept going to the abbot every day complaining, saying, you know, what a terrible bunch of monks you got here. You know, one of them eats too much, the other one doesn't wash his bowl properly, one's too greedy, one doesn't do his share of the raking. You know, you've got a terrible bunch of monks here. And he would complain and complain and complain. And the abbot would say to him, you know, think less, talk less, sit more. And so the monk would go back to his practice, and after a while the monk would come back to the abbot, still complaining. But this time about himself, you know, I am such a terrible monk, you know, I keep breaking the rules, I'm so greedy, I have lustful thoughts, you know, I have fantasies, I'm such a terrible monk. And the abbot said to him, you know, you are like a person who keeps chickens. And going out into the farmyard, instead of picking up the eggs, they pick up the droppings. <laughs> well, in our practice here, we are not here to pick up the droppings, to keep looking out, endlessly alert to that which is imperfect. There may very well be much for us to discover. There may very well be much for us to open to. And our invitation here is simply to listen well, to sit and walk without conclusion, to be open to the possibility of discovery, of awakening. Male beings live with equanimity. Male beings live with wisdom. Male beings live with compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.